So today we're doing a special webinar podcast episode. So if you're joining us on the Strategy and Leadership Podcast, um, just bear with us for a quick minute. We're going to get going here. I'm joined today by John Rossman. John, how are you today? Hey, great. Good to be here. I'm so excited. I'm, uh, you know, people start filtering into the room here because, you know, people are just like, I'm going to get this webinar just a little bit late. I'm just so excited, grateful to be able to speak with you. Uh, for those of you that don't know, I'm sure you do know, John is the author of Think Like Amazon. I'll give you a formal introduction lately, but uh, John, how is it in your part of the world today? So I'm in uh, the Seattle area. Uh, it's actually, I think, a relatively nice day for uh, this area. We had some pretty good rain yesterday, and things are improving. It feels like uh, at least they're opening up some. I don't know whether they're actually improving from a, a pandemic standpoint and everything. So um, you know, everybody's just keeping their fingers crossed that you know we continue to stay smart and continue to make progress. So. Yeah, I think that's what's what like really key about this, like that word, like progress. And we'll talk about innovation. We'll talk about being a digital leader. Is you know I've seen over the past couple of months, you know that that fear, uncertainty piece, and it's not good to make decisions out of fear, which I'm, you know we'll talk about. And being able to 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 move forward. And as you and I were talking about, sort of the keynote world, which you do a lot of keynotes and training on. Um, how people are sort of looking forward to being able to make better decisions. So I'm hoping that out of our conversation today, we can help our listeners from all around the world make better decisions and move forward in their business and organizations. How does that sound? Sound sounds great. And you know, I think you know part of what you've seen through this pandemic is uh, like the Wall Street Journal had had this headline, which was uh, "Pandemic Accelerates the Future," and they were talking specifically about the context of. Um, all the online grocery scenarios, kind of order online, pick up in store, order online, delivered to home, you know, all these different scenarios. But I think that statement is exactly true, which is, which is this has just accelerated the future. And what you're seeing in business is that if you had an inherent weakness or you were kind of on a gradual decline, a lot of businesses like this just accelerated that decline in the future. If you had new um, innovative capabilities that you were building towards this just accelerated the adoption and the need for those. Right. And so it kind of played out uh, both ways, but what you see is accelerated winners and accelerated losers kind of uh, through this and stuff. And I think that's going to be kind of a central tenet that we talk about, which is, you know, the need to always be leaning forward and trying new things, innovation, um, even when, you know, they, they cost you short-term, uh, profit and revenue, even when it doesn't seem like the market's there, the customers aren't there, the need isn't there. These are the things that allow you to adapt to sudden change that every once in a while we see. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I couldn't have said it better. Um, I'm really excited to be able to sort of unpack not only what you have in the book and, and for everybody listening, you know, this book is amazing. I highly recommend it. I'm going to read it again. There's 51 and a half tips in here. They're like easy to read short chapters, which I super appreciate. Everything we're going to talk about today is going to dissect parts of that. I'm going to try to peel out some of those intangible things that John might not have put in the book. But for those of you just joining us, and even if you're just, you know, tuning in right now, I want to again, formally welcome our our guest today, John Rossman, who is the author of Think Like Amazon. He is the partner, managing partner at Rossman Partners and a former 
director of enterprise services at Amazon, as well as, you know, you have a stint in Anderson Consulting and about a stint for a long time. Um, but John, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are right now, and then we'll get into some, some questions. <laughs> how did I get here? Like, I, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. So, um, you know, as an, an industrial engineer by education, and what I've always been interested in is kind of efficiency. Like, how do you reduce friction? How do you make improve quality, lower costs, reduce cycle times. Those are all the, the key topics you think about in especially kind of production engineering, industrial engineering and everything. And then I was also always interested in integration, right? How do you get systems, data, process, cross organization scenarios working? And I've really just made, uh, looking backwards, it's easy to see like how those dots uh, connected along the way. Uh, and everything. And I had an opportunity um, uh, in 2002 to join Amazon. I got to launch and scale the marketplace business. So that's third party at amazon.com. That's well over 50% of all their units shipped and sold today. And then I also ran enterprise services. So I was responsible for several big relationships, target.com, Toys R Us, Marks and Spencer in the UK, several others. And I left Amazon in late 2005 and started working with my clients on, you know, how do we make change happen? How do we operate better? How do we innovate? And I had one client in particular several years after I left Amazon, like six years after I left Amazon, um, he, uh, he ran, um, um, think of it as, as kind of communications, government relations at the Gates Foundation. And I wrote one piece uh, and he called me into his office and he goes, John, this is really good. And then he told me like the 10 things that I could have done better with it. And he's, a, he's, he's an editor by background, right? And everything. And it was just like, man, I see how you put all these little things from Amazon to work and, and you kind of put them into, into our sphere and into our protocol. Um, I think you ought to write a book. And he had uh, uh, been the lead for Bill Gates' two book projects, so he knew what he was doing. And so I said, uh, I had never thought about kind of writing books. And, and the best thing I did was I talked him into being my partner um, on these books and everything. So we've done kind of three books uh, since then. And Think Like Amazon really came from going out and talking and working to literally hundreds of audiences and organizations. And like, these are all the questions I kind of get. And so part of the book, I talk about essentially that, which is, you know, I get asked lots of different ways. Like, how would Jeff think about, you know, X? Like, how would he think about this situation or that situation or whatever? And what I noticed is it's actually easy to predict how Amazon would think about something. It's difficult to predict what they're going to do in the future. But if you give them a set of scenarios, because they're so consistent in what they prize, how they think, how they go about operating on something, that playbook is really consistent. And this is my attempt. I'm sure it's incomplete, but, but think like Amazon is my attempt at what that kind of full playbook is for how Amazon would kind of react to different circumstances. And then it gives the, the, the reader kind of a couple of either questions or activities to take at the end of each of those um, um, ideas. And so it really is my best attempt. It's been a long time since I've been at Amazon, but I'm always 
I, I have a lively network still at Amazon. There's lots of former Amazon employees. I'm always testing and getting like, hey, is this, you know, still how things happen? How do they react to this? And what's great is, as I said, Amazon's consistent, right? We really put this playbook, this, this set of principles and mechanisms in place when I was there and they just keep using those. And that's what has allowed them to scale to, to, to be an organization as big as they are and relatively non-bureaucratic, right? Um, and, and that is really what they're striving to be is to continue to be an entrepreneurial organization um, and that's kind of where the book came from. That's awesome. I get that. So a um, couple things I want to touch up. So the words that I want to hone in on. So principles, as in it's not like it, it's just like the ecosystem. It's the structure. It's the system, including how everybody does things. And you as an engineer must appreciate that because everything is built on structures and systems. There's scale. And I want to highlight to everybody listening is that like Amazon was not always Amazon today. We're listening to this in 2020. You know, five years ago, Amazon was not the same Amazon. Ten years ago, Amazon was not the same Amazon. Uh, in John's time, like you didn't have merchant integration. That's like taking the reason all those products are on there. And I'm going to give you like credit here. Just, it's because like, of you. Because you were able to put all of those, again, not just you. Yeah, you had right. a team. You had the vision. You had all that stuff. But it wasn't always like that. There's that famous video of, of Jeff Bezos who's like, oh, I think a bunch of people are going to buy books online, so I'm going to make a bookstore. That was the business. And so everybody on this webinar, whether you're a couple million dollar business, whether you're a multi-million dollar organization, I think a lot of those principles are applicable. And another thing I really liked was sort of your Socratic method of like, it's not do this. It's here's what we did and ask yourself these questions to say, how can we improve that? So my first question to you, oh, by the way, everybody on the chat, if you're on the chat today, if you have got questions, put them in there. I wanted to run a quick poll here to ask you, you know, how do you approach innovation in your organization, sort of using it as a subtext for today. Um, so if you're in the webinar, you can answer the, ask the question there and I'll leave it running till the end. Um, let's start at the beginning, John. You have a consulting background, you go through 20 something odd, interviews to be part of Amazon, which is like a startup in Washington. Um, how did you fit in with that culture? So how did you as a you know thinker fit within that system? And, and what were some of the key learnings that you had to take to adapt quickly to being successful? And then we'll go from there. Yeah, that's a good question. Cause you know, when I was joining um, um, Amazon, I had, I had, been a partner. I was a partner at Arthur Anderson. Uh, I was then at a, at a startup, an integration technology startup. So this is 2000, 2001. Um, and the number one thing that both impressed me and pressed me was like, you needed to have command of the details. You, you didn't just delegate, participate, design. So one of the ideas in the book is really about that. It's I think it's idea 10 about being a builder, right? And at Amazon, they always talk about like, hey, we are a company of builders. And what they mean by is that everybody needs to, you just don't get to delegate and budget and kind of move things around. You have to be able to specify like what's exactly the feature or the principle or the tenant or the metric or you know the thing that we're going to put in place everybody part 
in design and and operations and you just don't find people much that are just kind of moving things around at Amazon as you do in most typical big organizations. And so for me, I had to kind of like go a couple layers deeper than I was used to kind of going at uh, and everything. And that, th that was an adjustment uh, for me. And the, the other thing I really learned was about metrics. And, you know, my most impactful memories of Amazon were about the metrics meetings and how, how intentional those were. And they were intentional in, we're trying to find imperfections and we're trying to find the root cause of those imperfections and then take action on them, right? Improve them. Like, what can we learn from it? How do, how do we both fix that problem but then how is that problem a generalized problem and apply that same learning into, into other areas? What most organizations do is they try to, you know, like, yeah, we'll put our metrics in place. That, like, that's just a casual thing they do. And then they design their metrics and they use their metrics as a way of basically saying, hey, we're doing okay. Like, hey, we had an average day. Like our mean times were like this. Well, that's, tricking yourself into being mediocre, right? If you want to be world-class, you have to focus in on the part of your metrics where there's noise, where there's imperfection. You have to create SLAs so that you're measuring at the exact tail of those metrics so that not that, you know, the average customer has a good experience, but that 99.9% .9 of customers have a good experience. And then we're going to focus on that 0.1% of customers who didn't and understand why didn't they, right? And, and that, uh, that willingness to always be challenging ourselves, challenging the status quo and striving to be better, man, that, that was uh, the operational excellence orientation was one of the things that really impressed me, me and I learned a lot from and it, and it really fit in well with my orientation towards operations hmm. and, and, and efficiencies. Yeah. So really taking it. So a couple of like uh, the metrics piece. So I, I know some of the people that are on the call. I know who's on our podcast because I see every form. And so a couple of things I want to pull out of that, like the word challenge is like by and large, people are saying it's part of everything we do. We intentionally explicit and focus on it. After reading this book, I realize that I'm total dog shit at innovation relative to what is possible. And then that's that's that world classness, the um, looking at how many metrics for you to be able to deliver a million packages a day, 99.9% .9 of on time. Like, I think we get it as a consumer. When you actually think of like how, regardless of what you think of the business, and we're not gonna go there, but it's the ability to be able to provide what it does at scale and maintain that company promise is astounding. So looking at that, the metrics and at the depth of metrics. Um, I want to ask you a question about Jeff as a product owner and a product manager and what you've learned from him that we can sort of translate to some of the CEOs that are on here, like their approach. But I also want to talk to you about reducing friction, which is sort of more of a segue from what we talked about. So as it relates to KPIs, goals, as it relates to customer satisfaction, Talk to me about reducing friction and how Amazon as a whole, and we'll call it you as a whole as a consultant, approach reducing friction as a boundary condition. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, 
friction is is either the things that are imperfect about our product, our service, our our business that our customers have to slightly adapt to or deal with, um, or it's the little things that we ask them to do because we just haven't extended that far into kind of their experience or their 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 life, you know, and everything, right? Um, and so on the imperfection side, every customer contact, every customer question, uh, every customer issue is a signal, right? It's it's friction. It's a signal that we haven't quite hit the mark yet, right? And what most companies do in their customer contact organizations, their field services, is they maybe allow those organizations to get better, like, hey, how do we handle contacts and questions? But what they rarely do is empower those organizations to actually go solve the root cause for well, why was there a question? Why was there a contact? One of the early principles at Amazon, and it was it was pretty revolutionary and to some degree controversial at the time, was that this notion that the best service is no service, right? Customers don't really wanna have to talk to you. They don't really wanna have to ask a question. They don't really wanna have to contact you. And so our job was to eliminate customer contacts. And that's a big source of friction. And it's amazing how many of us still live with like, oh, you know, there was a customer question on that. There was customer feedback on that, da, 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 da. And we look at the means and like, oh, you know, things are going pretty well and everything, right? Like that's the, I kind of talk in the book about like, you know, I borrow Pink Floyd uh, lyric about being comfortably numb, right? We just get used to kind of the status quo. And then the other part of friction is, is just like, again, asking our customers to compensate for something because we haven't quite gotten there yet, right? And so a great area that I think about is the returns process, right? So, so it, it, it used to be that returns was something that companies made, they purposely put friction in place, right? You didn't wanna make it too easy for a customer return a product that they'd already purchased. Amazon took a completely 180 different perspective on it, which is we want to make it as easy as possible for customers to return something because over time, if customers trust that it's easy to return something, guess what they're going to do? They're going to buy more and more and more from us. So they're always playing the long game. So what you've seen is a 25 year history from Amazon of essentially continuing to make things alike the return process easier and easier and easier. And they're going to continue that, you know, really the, the history of Amazon and truly what I think being digital is about is the constant elimination of friction and continuing to expand to make it easier and easier for your customers and learning and sensing along the way of new ways to serve uh, your customers and to make a business out of that. And, and so I think friction and you can't do it by survey, you can't do it by proxy, you actually have to have really detailed understanding of the customer experience that takes metrics, that takes customer obsession, that means walking in the shoes of your customers as much as possible to really understand the little details of, of what is the friction. And I'm always 
I always do this motion, which is we're sanding little things off along the way to make it slippier and slippier. Hmm. Um, I want to highlight for our listeners, he never used the word e-commerce. He just used the word digital. As in, it doesn't matter if you're a bricks and mortar, clicks and whatever. Or, or you're in the utilities business or, you know, you're in the manufacturing business. Like this isn't about e-commerce. This is about competing and competing with this notion of, of kind of being digital, right? Using new new data, using new technologies, new using new um, technical capabilities. But being digital is about how we compete now, right? Like, and it, and it, and it really has, uh, again, e-commerce or your website or mobile phone or cloud computing, like, well, that's just a tool to help get things done. Being digital is about how you compete. Hmm. So um, we joke at SME strategy that I have one flaw and it's that I ask multiple questions stacked on top of each other. <laughs> so I'm going to do that. And I can that. only remember, I can only remember <laughs> one thing at a time. So and I got take, that. It well, e- I- take it easy on me. It'll be like a choose your own adventure kind of thing as you listen to the podcast. But okay, so first thing I want to say about the competing, because there was an article or it was article, you know, like the antitrust thing happening with Amazon and and Jeff's position on it is that like, first of all, we're a super small competition part of the market. So we're not really competing. We're actually giving access to more people. So we are a platform to support people, which I find, you know, for some people like I don't compete in my business. It's like, well, you're right, but you're sort of competing against yourself as part of it, which Again, it's Amazon principle, um, an open loop. Is can I, I tackle that? Can I tackle that anti-competition perspective and everything? Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so first is, I think the story that gets forgotten about Amazon, in particular about Jeff Bezos, is this is a guy who first bet on himself. He walked away from this great job at DE Shaw. He was the, uh, which is this hedge fund in New York. He was the youngest vice president ever there. He bet on himself. He walked away from his annual bonus to start something new. I love that story, right? Like that's, that's a great entrepreneurial story. Secondly, is what everybody remembers is kind of the past, you know, 10, 11 years where basically the stock has done nothing but kind of go up and to the right. But there was a 10 year period where the stock was essentially flat. I was kind of there for in the middle part of that of that 10 year period. Amazon was doubted and was was laughed at and and was criticized um, for such a long period of time on everything that they were trying to press forward for. But Jeff stayed consistent in his beliefs. Jeff stayed consistent in building ahead and spending ahead. Jeff didn't pay attention to his stock price. He did what he thought was right for customers and he did what he thought right for the long-term value of the organization. And they've won because of that. Now today, they're a massive organization and they, and they have this breadth of understanding and services that is, is really unique. He is doing exactly what every CEO needs to do which, which is called fiduciary responsibility, which is a responsibility to your shareholders to seek out the most that you can seek out for your shareholders. That is your job as a CEO. If there are issues about anti-competition, guess whose issue that is? That's the people in Washington's issues, right? Like that's our policymakers, that's our politics. Amazon is playing the game completely by the rules. If you don't like how it's working, 
change the rules, change the policies. But Amazon is a success story and where things need to adopt is in our policies and in our, in our, in our, in our ability to craft businesses and the environments that we incubate young businesses. It's not with Amazon. Uh, and so I, I, I really, every time a politician starts complaining about Amazon, I just want to say, which is one of my favorite sayings ever, I use it in the book, uh, which is Bill Belichick, who's the coach of the New England Patriots, which is simply this, do your job, right? So do your job if you don't like the way that Amazon is playing out. It's, it's what we we'll call them haters. You know, it's like if you're you're mad because the company has been so successful and it's got a lot of stuff going on. My, my open loop that I would thank you for going there. The yeah. open loop I wanted to talk about was the long game, which we're just going to keep sprinkling into here. You know, the analogy I use for a long game is if, you know, you're making a bottle of scotch, you're making wine or something that takes a long time. You can't put it in and say, well, it takes five years. Well, two years or three years. It's it's not ready. Like, what the hell? You know, I've got myself a 20 year strategic plan. And as a relatively young person, sometimes I get annoyed that my 20 year strategic plan isn't coming to fruition in 10 years. But so it's a little bit of like vindication for myself. It's like, OK, I'm like I'm on track. What I did want to ask you about two part question talking about failures is the original uh, the original iterations of the marketplace yeah. like the two versions of the marketplace pre what it is right now to say that it's not all sunshine and roses in terms of stuff that you put out and right. then the second part of that question is the scaling the third party system and sort of leveraging the reducing friction and then automating the customer decision and how our listeners can say, hey, what can I learn from scaling that third party piece to apply to my business to be able to scale and grow? So original integrations and then iterations. And then what did you learn from that third party? And we'll go from there. Yeah. So there, so you know, the the the, the general marketplace concept is the ability of like, hey, how do we let others sell on top of the Amazon platform? There's two iterations prior to the marketplace model that we that we know today from Amazon. The first was they actually did an auctions business uh, and it it failed. And then the second was this thing called uh, Z Shops. Uh, and and, and um, not many people remember what Z Shops was, but it was essentially this ability for other, other sellers to sell things, but it didn't have an integrated uh, checkout pipeline payments. It was, it was like this complete separate thing. Remember back in 2000, 2001, who was the absolute kingpin of e-commerce? It was eBay, right? And so Amazon, uh, at that point, 90% of the business was books, music, video. And, and Jeff was like, hey, I got to expand into new categories. But A, I can't afford all the inventory that that would take. And it would be way too risky because B, I don't know these categories inherently. So I want to open up these categories, leveraging third-party sellers. It's a great combination. They get access to my customers. I get access to their selection and, and merchandising um, expertise. And so in 2002, uh, holiday 2002, we opened the apparel category at Amazon. I think we had like 35 sellers opening up the business. 
for that holiday. Then over two years, we, we launched like 14 more categories, you know, sporting goods, music, musical instruments, gourmet, uh, much bigger electronics uh, category than we had home, garden, all these different categories. Essentially what Amazon is today from a category standpoint um, in their, in their re retail business. But guess what? It didn't just take off from the start. It, it took a couple of things really for it, but, but underneath it all, it took time, right? What it took was for first is customers becoming to recognize like, oh, I can go to Amazon for things way bigger than books, music, video. Um, secondly, it really took getting a selection that was an authoritative selection, right? Authoritative meaning like if you are looking for, you know, some unique, you know, camping item, when you go to Amazon to shop for that camping item, you're going to find, you know, that, that lantern style that you are looking for. That's authoritative selection in a category. Um, and third, it, it really took the combination of the prime membership model with this little thing called FBA, Fulfillment by Amazon, that when a third-party seller put their items into Amazon fulfillment centers and were part of the FBA, then they were prime eligible. And it was really that, that triangle, that combination of capabilities, and then just time. And it really took eight years after, seven, eight years after we launched Marketplace for then the Marketplace business to really ramp up. Coincidentally, that was also right at the same time the Amazon stock, kind of the 2009-2010 era, when the Amazon stock started to consistently be progressing to, to where it is today. And so, you know, and I, and I think that's one of the, the, the essences, which is how do you be patient in allowing learning to go on and to, to allow businesses to progress, but also just being impatient for kind of everyday advancement towards making it better, right? And, mm -hmm. and the, while those may seem um, completely at odds with each other, they're, they're actually, it's like being a, you need to be a patient investor, but an impatient operator, right? And, and, and that's the best way I can describe kind of the dichotomy that I'm trying to get at. So a couple of themes from there, again, like the, the patience, the iteration, the, again, long-term, making those small adjustments. One thing that we can unpack if anybody has any questions, is like doing other people's work. Like one of the reasons it was an available opportunity to scale was because Amazon didn't do everything themselves, which I think a lot of CEOs, business owners try to do. We, we, we had a name for that strategy, I, and I talk about it in the book called OPW, which stands for Other People's Work. And so on some things that you need to get done, but you can't afford it, you don't want to scale it, you don't have the expertise, whatever it is, figure out a way to get others to do that work for you. Now, you, you need to provide great tooling for them. You need to provide incentive systems for them. But oftentimes thinking through, like, how do I get – and that's really kind of the ecosystem – that you participate in and thinking through, you know, your flywheel, which is really the flywheel is really about like your systemic understanding of how you think change is going to happen relative to your, your strategy and what you want to create. Hmm. And thinking like a systems approach to it. So, and then the other thing that I want to pull out from the previous statement was when the stock 
started growing, when Amazon really started expanding, is when it moved from a business to a platform. Is like allowed other people the opportunity to be successful because that's fundamentally what it was. It wasn't just yes, we want to sell more stuff, but we can't sell more stuff without having other people sell more stuff. That's, that that's, was the that's right, that's right. and the market just matured, right? People got much more comfortable in buying things online, having them delivered. That also is the time when AWS, Amazon Web Services, like some people started to see, like, oh, that's a completely new paradigm for how you own and operate technology uh and they got a multi-year lead uh on that and so that really is when kind of the stock started kind of going up and to the right yeah which again the the thing was around hey how can we solve a problem how can we build a better mousetrap fundamentally aws in the sense that people have needs we can provide something better cheaper faster all of the above and it took off like they just and, sound and, and in and in that essence they also built something that they needed as a business right but they forced themselves to build it in a way that they could use it as a business but also externally right and one of the real lessons from that and, and bezos talks about this is is that forcing your so forcing yourself to build tools that you use but then forcing yourself to have external customers is always important because customers have what he calls divine discontent, right? Customers are always gonna push you to build something that's better. Whereas internal customers, well, these are the people we work with. These are our colleagues. You can't be as divinely discontent as an internal customer because you, you, you're great people, right? Like it, it gets annoying, but external customers force you to build something better. And that was one of the reasons why Amazon went down that AWS path was just the recognition that, hey, external developers are gonna force us to build a better technical capability. Wow, but then they stumbled into an unbelievable business. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it was built intentionally. Like, and then all of the other, once that big bet was made, and I can't remember what the wording you use, like versus big bets, but important bets. Once that thing was made, then all of the systems processes internally were set, okay, here's where we're going. I might've changed my mind, but here's where we're going. Everything we're gonna do from a process standpoint is gonna align with that. And if you're you know, trying to build the cell or build something of high value, you shift your processes to sort of stack the value on top of it to maximize it. It, it was really cool. Uh, anything you want to add on there before I ask my? No, you nail it. Okay. So we opened today's interview about uh, talking about innovation and where people are at. By the way, if you're on the chat, be sure to put your questions. Happy to answer them. Um, as it relates to our business owners, CEOs, middle managers, et cetera, people who are leading strategy, what are the two or three things that you would recommend they ask themselves as it relates to being a a, one, a day one company versus a day two company. And I know the jargon because it's in the book, but why don't you explain a little bit about what that means and how it relates to fostering innovation? Yeah, so um, the day one kind of notion, it's been kind of this headline or this quip that Amazon and Bezos have echoed for a long time, which is, hey, we're a day one company. Uh, uh, the internet is just beginning. And so in one of his recent shareholder letters, I think it was 2016 shareholder letter, Jeff, he addresses, it, he says, hey, I get asked a lot about like, what's a day one company? More importantly, what's a day two company and what do I do? If I am a day two company, well, first, a day two company 
is a company that is essentially trying to harvest as much as possible for today. They're trying to optimize for a, a relatively short period of time. Um, and so these are the profit optimizers who aren't necessarily investing in their future as much or aggressively. And the second thing is, is that day two companies, they tend to, to be pretty comfortable with the status quo. They don't really want industry to change. They don't really want competition to change because they're probably the successful company in, in, in their space right now. They're, they're comfortable with uh, where they're at. Um, and the other thing a day two company does is they, they tend to get a little, a little lazy, right? They're comfortable, right? You, you start to relax a little bit, right? We see that all the time in successful businesses, which is, you know, I just want to relax a little bit, right? You stop uh, paying as much attention to customers and customer needs. You stop, you know, trying to get towards perfection. So, um, Jeff said, so here's the things you do if, if you're, if, and, and, and he talks about like a day two company essentially is one that's in stasis and, and is, is, and is facing a long uh, decline uh, suffered by uh, inevitable death, I think is the dramatic way that he, he says it in the shareholder letter. Um, and so what's a, what do you do as a, as a, what's a day one company? What do you do if you're a day two company to become a day one company? Well, day one company is one that isn't trying to optimize for the short term, they're trying to optimize for the long term. A day one company doesn't um, rely on proxies relative to understanding their customer. Well, what are proxies? Yeah. proxies? Proxies are things like customer surveys, benchmarks, things that make you kind of look good, but don't actually pull you into each specific customer experience. True metrics, focusing on what your customer contacts are saying, those are the things that get you beyond proxies, right? And, and, and focusing on a customer issue, no matter how good you are, when you focus on what this order, this customer, this product, and what happened in it, for, it it's kind of the, the canary in the coal mine, right? Like it pulls you into the issue and shows you you're not perfect, no matter how good you are, right? A, a, a day one company pays attention to important trends and is curious about those and starts dabbling in those really early. And a day one company is trying to invent the future, create the future. So you spend a lot of your time and resources, maybe in an inordinate sense, focusing on what's the future, right? And so I always, I, when I, when I go out and do keynotes, I, I, I sometimes have this slide that's called WTF, right? And I go, oh, wow, what do you mean WTF? It's like, hey, WFTF stands for what's the future, right? And the essence is as senior leaders, we need to spend more time being curious about, you know, if you think about horizon one, right? Horizon one, one to three years, horizon two, three to six years, three to five years. Horizon three, five plus years. Let's spend more time in that horizon three. Like, what are the things that seem silly, small, curiously, but not really uh, important to our business today? Let's spend more time in that horizon three. Be curious, learn about them. And then let's start experimenting with them early. And what that allows you to do is it gives you time. It gives you the time to invest, experiment, build, let your customers and the market adopt. And then you're creating kind of the next stair step 
for the longevity in your business. And, and so it's really all about longevity. One of, one of my favorite uh, Bezos quotes um, was he was, he was asked by a reporter, hey, you know, Jeff, you're the, you're the kingpin of disruption. Are you con concerned about Amazon being disrupted, right? And his answer, I think, is an absolute goldmine. His answer was, uh, after he kind of laughed, he, he goes, it's not a question of if, it's a matter of when. And I'm just trying to make it so it's not in my lifetime. And I think that's the most humble um, and honest answer. And, and really, if you want to create a long-term business, a legacy business, you, 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 your, your, your goal is how do I continue to disrupt myself more or less, or, or, or you know a factual statement is it's going to happen, right? Um, and, and I think just truly admitting that, like admitting like all of our lives are gonna end, guess what you do? You act differently, right? And it frees you up to act longer term. And, and I think that's one of the, the real secrets of Amazon is, is investing and acting with a long-term orientation. So we covered a lot of stuff today. This will be my final question before I go one more uh, sort of attendee question. So if you're in the chat, please feel free to ask a question. Um, we talked about reducing friction. We talked about looking long-term. We talked about getting other people's work. We talked about, you know, innovation as a whole and fundamentally like looking long-term, you know, shifting from that horizon one to horizon three. And when you get into the horizon three, then the immediates, you know, they're not such big fires after all. Um, Really and you're, you're 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 looking. You're not looking at today's competitors. You're looking at small little things that might be future competitors, right? Exactly. Um, we talk, and what I really like as a takeaway is that the customer, your, your orientation to the customer is not based on like secondary or tertiary data. Like you're you're getting into the weeds to really understand what those pains are to increase the i mean value for the customer fundamentally and then also like reduce the friction which just makes it easier to buy and that's one of the things you know especially during the pandemic why people kept buying stuff is because i don't have to leave my house i can literally buy something i got a sleep mask and i was in bed in the morning saying i wish i had a sleep mask and by that night i was sleeping with it like that's the, the, the ability to reduce that friction you know sometimes human beings don't buy because it's the best even though you guys have done product uh, what is it? Product authority, which we're not going to go there this time, but just reducing that friction, making it easier for your customer to buy, understanding your customer is probably the first step to get there to be able to make um, that like possible. So if we take all of the themes that we put together today and as we close in, how does a senior leader begin to make that transformation within an organization to be able to have it away from thinking about horizon one or shorter to being horizon three. And then, you know, what are some of the things that we can put in place? If you have like two or three, like actionable takeaways, I really liked forcing functions. Um, what are two or three things that we could put in place as actionable things before the end of the year to be able to move that forward? And then we'll answer a couple of questions and then we'll finish up. Well, a, a couple of ideas is first is, you know, what are the couple of, you know, topics, you know, Bezos mentions machine learning, you know, there, there's, there's lots of them that might be the future, either mechanisms or ways you compete or future competitors that you should be paying attention to. And then 
pay attention to it. Go on a learning journey. It's best as a, as a team to do it. Go on a learning journey and then be asking yourself, well, how could that apply to our customers, to our business? And is there an early bet or a way we could participate so that we're just learning about this so then we can better estimate and approach how we would make a bigger step, a bigger investment in that area? So that that would be uh, one thing. Um, and then so small bets, but faster, just if well, I can faster, but, but it starts with curiosity, right? And, and like deliberate curiosity on a topic and going on a learning journey, right? So the, how do you do that? Like, well, it's by, you know, the, the content you, you, you listen to, it's by the books you read, it's by the, the external people, hopefully contrarians to your point of view that you invite in to get their perspective. Those are all the ways that you, you are deliberately uh, curious. Uh, you mentioned forcing function. A forcing function is essentially a, 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 an approach for, as a senior leader, I can't pay attention to every detail, but I want something specific to happen. And a forcing function is a thing you do that upfront you put it in place and it forces a team to deliver or to execute for a particular purpose. So an example of a forcing function might be a metric, right? Um, you have to deliver 99.5% of all um, uh, deliveries within one day or less, right? Like that's a really well-constructed objective, might be a really high bar, but if you said, hey, that's what we need to do, then you can let the team go and they know they have to deliver to that. Um, another example might be a tool that I talk about in the book called the future press release, which is an announcement about a new feature, a new capability, and you're really deliberate about exactly what delighted your customers about it. And you write that up front and you go, okay, team, this is what you have to deliver to. And then you don't have to pay quite as much attention to it because you know that they have, you, you're going to be able to go back and essentially audit them relative to this forcing function. Are our products being delivered like this? Does a customer have this type of experience? And those are the things that allow you to kind of scale as a leader um, while still being really specific about the outcome that you're looking for. Mm, I got that. So putting putting it in, but also instead of just being vague about it and saying, hey, we want like this thing to happen, which I, I see a lot. I see a lot exactly. of vague things that sound good, but are really weak um, to actually say, okay, here's what we really need. Here's what this would happen if we put this in place. And I talk, I talk a few times in, in, in Think Like Amazon about trying to get to clarity in our communication, right? And, and a lot of these steps are about getting to clarity in communication. And clarity means both completeness of thought plus simplicity of thought, right? Mm. And um, there's a quote by this author, George Bernard Shaw, that is, um, the biggest mistake we make about communication is assuming that it's happened. And, and um, and, and so much of this is a human communication problem when we're thinking about the future, right? It's intangible. So we have to really be deliberate on getting to clarity, like specifics, like, are we talking about the same thing? Do we agree that this is going to be the end point, the, the experience, how it's going to operate? And when you can, when you work to getting to the important aspects of clarity up front, before you start building, before you start the journey, before you start the path, everybody can execute a whole lot better man that's so true and it's the the mistake assuming that the message has been delivered is so oh, 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 I, I, i've said it once i've said it twice people should get you have to stay 
on message, on point, and you always have to be going to the specifics, not the generals. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, John. So we got one more question from our from our participant here. And so I'm going to sort of frame it. One question was, so it says, I'll read the whole thing and then I'll frame it. Amazon is a tremendous success story. However, maximizing shareholder value above all else is a choice and not a mandate. We, what do you think about stakeholder capitalism? So I don't know what stakeholder capitalism means in, in that context, but I'll give that question to you. Yeah, I, I mean, I could argue with the premise of the of the question, you know, to, to some degree, right? Um, uh, um, but I do think that there is, especially for these big organizations, not just optimizing for the customer experience, not just optimizing for shareholders, but there is a, a third party, right? Like our communities are, 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 um, are, you know, I'll, I'll put it as our communities, right? Who have to be, I think a little more visible in how those decisions are, are being made. I think that that's a very fair question and observation. You know, Amazon can point to lots of things that they do, but yet I think the next 25 years for Amazon, that that needs to be a bigger um, kind of kind of weight in, in how they evaluate what they do for their business as it needs to be for a lot of big companies. Hmm. And you know what? Well, thank you for that, John. And one of the things I'll, I'll challenge everybody on, on the call today is Amazon's where Amazon's at. Like, how can you take everything that we've shared today? How can you take the notion of stakeholder capitalism? How can you apply, you know, the, well, 50 and a half digital ideas that get shared plus everything else that John has been super generous to share today? Like, don't take the whole kit and caboodle because you can't. You know, take a couple ideas, put it in place and move on. Do it iteration, do those small bets. Be curious about how your organization can apply this stuff so that you can fulfill whatever mandate you want to fulfill as you move your organization forward. Uh, anything else you want to add on that part of it, Joan? Because you work with organizations, big organizations, small organizations across the world. So, yeah, I think it, 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 it really is about being thoughtful about you know what do you think your mission is and then what are the the principles that the tenets that we believe in in a tangible sense not in this oblique or kind of abstract sense and be careful about what you commit to be thoughtful about it take your time in making those but then once you do like go all in, right? And it's going to be so much more fun and you're going to be able to inspire so much bigger action out of your employees, your your ecosystem, your suppliers, your customers, when you're clear about what you believe in and what your mission is. You got time for one more question? Absolutely. Okay. Someone asked, what is the key for employee retention at Amazon? So I think it's a good segue. That's why. Yeah. You, you, you know, um, uh, it, uh, I think that uh, the key for retaining the right employees um, is meaningful work, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that ability to deliver real product, deliver real results, be a decision maker at a, at a speed that most big companies don't let but leaders throughout the organization be, that is a really attractive thing for Amazon. But the flip side of that is, is that Amazon doesn't want to be 
and and shouldn't be the right place for every person. And uh, and I think that's a mistake that a lot of companies make is they they think that um, culture is something like, well, we have to make everybody successful here. We have to make this the right place for everybody. And it's like, actually, I think culture is about attracting and retaining the right people for your business, for your mission, for your principles. And you have to be willing to repel the people who aren't the right people for that business, for that culture uh, and everything. And you're doing everybody a favor by having that. And so what you're seeing is a lot of the high performing digital future companies are being much more specific about, hey, this is who we are. And this is this is why you're going to be successful here. If we aren't the right company for you, that's okay. You know, and everything like, like no, no fault, but this is who we are. And I, and I think that willingness to, again, be thoughtful about who you are, what your mission is, and, and what do you want people to believe in and to buy into, to be part of that culture and be willing to say, we're not for everybody, I, th I think is, is absolutely the right orientation. And I could be argued on that, like, like, uh, and everything, but that, that I think is Amazon's perspective on it. That's, that's always been my perspective on it, which is, you know, we're not, we're, 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 we're not a family. We're a team. We're trying to accomplish something. We have to be high performing. We need to be the right place for the right group of people for the right team. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's it, right? Like that's the rules. You can't be everything to all people. And by really honing in and that customer focus, including stakeholders, including employees has, um, has everything like to be part of it, to make a high performing organization. Cool chapter in this raising the bar. I highly recommend you get this book. Um, not just cause John's here, cause it's just genuinely really good. And I read a lot of books, think like Amazon. And um, there's a good audible version of it. I've gotten a lot of compliments on the audible version. If you want to listen to it and stuff, it translates well into a good listen and stuff. I'm going to reread it. John, thank you so much for being with us today. You've been super generous with your time. It's been awesome and a genuine pleasure. So thanks for, for being here. Cool. Thanks for the, for, thanks for the discussion. Been a lot of fun. Yeah. Absolutely. So ladies and gentlemen, my guest today has been John Rossman, who is the author of Think Like Amazon, the managing partner at Rossman Partners. John, again, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Folks, this has been the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. My name is Anthony Taylor. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube or on your favorite podcast service. And I look forward to sharing with you next time. Thanks, everyone.